Good morning, church, and welcome to our outdoor service. Maybe we can call it church outside or church on the lawn. This morning, certainly hot church would be appropriate. Even awkward sweat-stained church would work for us this morning. But I do appreciate being able to gather and for for you all coming out to brave the elements. We are still functioning as a church, even though we are not meeting indoors. We're being faithful to the command in the letter to the Hebrews in chapter 10, where he says, Do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together, as is common for some. And then also, we're being faithful to what we see as the pattern in the book of the Acts of the Holy Spirit, in which the believers would gather for worship. We're being faithful to what the Apostle Paul is going to write to the Corinthians in the letter, the letter, the very letter that we are studying later on when he encourages the saints when they gather to read the word, to preach the word, to sing, to observe the Lord's table. So we're going to be doing all those things, but just outdoors uh, from now on. And it really is amazing when you consider that what has been happening here in California, in the United States of America in 2020, we have been meeting, we are, excuse me, we had been meeting indoors, in secret. And that that is a, a strange thing. I do know that we aren't the only ones doing that. I know of other churches here in our county that are meeting in secret. And by that, I mean that they're meeting indoors at their church. But if you look on their website, it just says, you know, something like join us for online worship, which is not what they're actually doing. They're being faithful to gather. And I know that there are many churches up and down the coast, up from the north to the south of California, southern end of California, that are doing the same thing, meeting in secret, whereas their website doesn't reveal that. They're not putting out announcements on the social, on social media or through whatever other means there are. And I talked to some of my pastor friends that live in other states, and they're, they're just blown away by the, of the fact that churches are having to meet in secret in California. And they were praying for us as well, which is a, is a good encouragement. But as you know, uh, we no longer will be meeting indoors because we were reported to the district attorney's office. And so that's why we are out uh, outdoors now. And we don't know who reported us. Uh, the district attorney did tell us this, though. He did say that it was someone who identified themselves as a member, someone who knew that we were having services on Sunday. They found out and they you know, went to the DA to report us. Now, it's hard to say who that member is. We don't know, and I don't want to speculate, and I don't think that you all should speculate either. Uh, but, I mean, it could be... I, I, I really don't think it was one of us who have been meeting. It could be a member who was on the way out, uh, perhaps a member who's in the process of even church discipline, but we don't know for sure. One of the things that we do know is that it, you know, it wasn't just a neighbor. It wasn't someone that was just a visitor or a guest, or at least they didn't identify themselves that way. But what I do know is that whoever would do this sort of thing doesn't really have a love for us as a church. It would be one thing if someone was concerned with us meeting and they came to us and they had a discussion with us and they talked to us about the decision to do it, but that didn't happen. Whoever this man or woman is that reported us to the district attorney's office, they just went and did that. And that's not a loving thing to do. It is a hateful thing to do 
the reality of the matter is that they are wanting to bring contempt, contempt upon Christ's church. And they were wanting us to receive fines or to stop meeting. I'm not sure why that is. Uh, again, it's not even worth speculating. But there are some things pastorally that I would like for you all to be aware of and thinking about along the, this train of thought. Number one, uh, whoever did this, they don't deserve to receive hatred from us. Even though they did this to us as Christians, our job is to not repay with the same kind of an attitude. If we think of what our Lord and Savior Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, he says that we are to love those who hate us. We're not supposed to return hate for hate. And in doing so, in showing love to those who would come against us, and it's clear, again, that this sort of an action is not a loving thing to do. For us to show them love would glorify God. And so even in our thoughts, I'm asking for you to show this person love because even though we don't know who he or she is, because I don't want for, a, I don't want for there to be a root of bitterness to grow in our hearts over this matter. We don't need to grumble about it because God is sovereign. He is providentially in control of all things. And the other thing that I wanted for us to be thinking about during this time as well too is we also should bless them rather than curse them. Uh, Just because their desire was to curse us, was to cause us to go through some sort of harm, either again not meeting or to receive some sort of fines, we don't want to act that same way to them. Vengeance belongs to the Lord. And we should note as well that if you take issue with Christ's church, in essence, what you are also doing is taking issue with Christ himself. Jesus is the head of the church. To persecute any Christian is to just simply persecute Christ himself. So whoever has done this, it would seem that they don't really truly have a love for Christ, even though they were identifying themselves as a member here at our church. Now, we're not supposed to curse them. Uh, Instead, what Christ Jesus instructs us is that we should bless those who curse us. And then he further goes on to say that we should pray for those who persecute us. I understand this is a light persecution. Uh, We're looking at the potential issue of having to deal with some fines possibly six up to six months in jail. I'm not sure uh, who would have to do that. But the reality is, is this is a this is persecution. And we need to be thinking rightly and Christianly about these things because it seems as if these types of things will increase in our culture as the years continue forward. That seems like that it is the trajectory that we are on. But our Lord gives us great confidence uh, because we know that we are His, and even the gates of hell won't prevail against His church. And so His instruction is for us to pray for those who have persecuted us. So since this is our first day outdoors, I think it would be a good time for us to do that. So let's pray, and then we'll get to the text that we have for this morning. Father in heaven, great is your faithfulness. You are God over all. There is nothing greater than you. You are accomplishing your perfect will as it is in heaven. You're doing so on earth. And we pray that you would be glorified through this trial that we are having to go through. It is 
difficult for us to meet outside. You know our weakness, but Lord, we do not want to have an idol of comfort. And we know that it is greater to be able to simply gather and worship you. And so we are out here this morning in defiance of whatever may come against us, Lord, knowing that it is your will for us to worship. So please, Lord, we ask that you would give us strength to endure whatever trouble may come our way. And we do pray for the man or the woman who reported us to the DA. Please, Lord, soften their heart. Make them to see what their actions are truly meaning and saying. Cause them to be repentant. Cause them to desire to gather, even in the face of a fear of a virus or a fear of anything. Lord, we, we pray that if they if they do truly know you, that they would feel sorrow over their choice. And we ask that you would be merciful to them for Christ's glory's sake. Please bless our time today. Help us to not get distracted by the heat. Help us to be healthy through it all even as well. And we ask all of this for Christ's glory. In his name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> Excuse me. Let me take a sip of water. So, Last week, we took a break from the letter to the Corinthians to focus on the Christian response to fear. But we're back in 1 Corinthians today. This morning, we begin in chapter 2, so you can open up your Bible to there now, please. If you remember, the Corinthian congregation has a number of problems. These saints are sinners just like us. And the first problem the apostle addresses is division in the church. The saints are not united. They're divided over a number of different matters, and the holiness of God's church is called into question at this point. So the Apostle begins his corrective diagnosis by pointing the church and pointing us toward the person of Christ who overcomes all meaningless division and leaves division where it matters again over the person of Christ. And so in chapter 1, verse 4 through 9, he points out the blessing they have in Christ because of Christ. His letter to the Ephesians sums it up well when he says that we have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Then in verse 10 through 17, he notes that Christ is not divided himself. And if Christ is not divided, then for thus, excuse me, for those of us in Christ, for what reason should we be divided? There isn't any. We are in Christ. We should be united to one another. We've been united to God, Father, Son, and Spirit. And so we should be united. And then in, ver- in the rest of chapter 1, he elaborates on how there is this division in, in the world where you have people who reject the gospel of Christ in contrast to those who have been illuminated by the Spirit, who then receive it and then in faith proclaim that Christ is the power and wisdom of God. So Christ and Christ alone is their boast, just as it is that when we boast, our boast is in the Lord. We learned about that a couple weeks ago. And this boasting in the Lord, it unifies us. It humbles us. It grounds us in the perfect work of Christ and causes us to take our eyes off ourselves. And that's the big problem, you see. When, when our eyes are not on Christ, when our eyes are on ourselves, that's when division comes because we all want our own way. We all want to do what seems right to us. Now, that's just a brief summary of chapter 1. We've devoted eight sermons to the fine details of what I just mentioned. But here in the beginning of chapter 2, the Apostle is going to drive this emphasis on Christ's home and also point out its centrality in his own personal ministry. So then, let's read the passage and then we'll pray before we study his word together. The word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1 in 1 Corinthians 2, 1-5. through 5. Please follow along. 
And when I came to you, brothers, and excuse me, and I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. That ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and sufficient word. May He apply it to our hearts. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. How it is often like a surgeon's tool to dissect us and to show us our need for you, to humble us. And we pray that it would do such work with precision this morning, causing us to love you more, causing us to know you better, causing us to have the same sort of desire that the Apostle Paul had to know nothing among this world except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Lord, grant us understanding. Holy Spirit, help us to be free from distraction and help us to take from Your Word what it is that You desire we should. Please apply it to us. Increase our faith. All for Christ's glory's sake, we pray in His name. Amen. So, I wonder if you would agree with the following view of the cross of Christ. And and please, right now, pay close attention here, okay, to every word. I want this to be clear. I want you to see this. I want you to understand the subtlety of this statement. So here it is. The crucifixion of Christ was a once-for-all substitution of the Son of God in my place so that I would not have to suffer but could enjoy the abundant life that He purchased for me. Let me repeat that, okay? Because again, I want you to, to, to be thinking if you would agree with this statement. The crucifixion of Christ was a once-for-all substitution of the Son of God in my place so that I would not have to suffer but could enjoy the abundant life that He purchased for me. Now church, this is a common view today. Many of the professing Christian churches in America today live by this principle. And it is very, very near to the view that Paul had to contend with at Corinth. So you can see already that I'm saying that this statement actually wasn't very good. You see, the cross, and by that I mean Christ crucified, is an essential aspect of the Christian faith that must never be neglected or allowed to be diminished. That is, we must never allow it to be eclipsed by a theology of glory on this side of Christ's second coming. The doing so of this leads to all sorts of errors and even depression and anxiety in the Christian life. What I'm talking about is a theology of the cross versus a theology of glory. And I understand that these are doctrines which we may not, excuse me, all be familiar with. So I want to take a moment to define them. Certainly we're all familiar with the cross, we're familiar with glory, but when we speak of a theology of glory in contrast to a theology of the cross, we mean something very specific and precise. So let me explain this to you so that you might have a good understanding of what it is that I'm talking about and what it is that I really think the Apostle Paul is getting at here to the saints in Corinth. The concept of a theology of glory in contrast to a theology of the cross comes from the German reformer Martin Luther. Luther, 
angry with the abuses of the church, particularly the collection of indulgences, was asked to defend his views in Leipzig, Germany, two years after he nailed the 95 Theses to the church door at Wittenberg that sparked the beginning of the Reformation. Collecting indulgences meant that the priests became wealthy at the expense of the common folk. And for Luther, the priests selling indulgences was an example of a theology of glory and made them theologians of glory. In the Heidelberg Disputations, this is a document written by Luther in 1518, he articulated the distinction between a theology of glory and a theology of the cross. And it happens to be this distinction it happens to be a theological blind spot in our day. Many churches are, I, I guess I would say, lost and deceived by this theology of glory. So listen to these powerful statements that Luther wrote over 400 years ago, 500 years ago. This is Article 21 in the document. He says, A theology of glory calls evil good and good evil. A theology of the cross calls a thing what it actually is. He goes on to say, This is clear. He who does not know Christ does not know God hidden in suffering. Therefore, he prefers works to suffering, glory to the cross, strength to the weakness, wisdom to folly, and in general, good to evil. These are the people whom the apostle calls enemies of the cross of Christ, Philippians 3.18. For they hate the cross and suffering and love works in the glory of works. Thus, they call the good of the cross evil, and the evil of a good, excuse me, and the evil of a deed good. God can only be found in suffering in the cross, as he has already, as has already been said. Therefore, the friends of the cross say that the cross is good, and works, that is, for justification and esteem, are evil. For through the cross, works are dethroned, and the old Adam, who was especially edified by works, is crucified. It is impossible for a person not to be puffed up by his good works unless he has first been deflated and destroyed by suffering and evil until he knows that he is worthless and his works are not his, but God's. Now, I know that was kind of lengthy, kind of long, and I would read it again, but it's really hot. So I think I'll just remind you of what it is. It's from the Heidelberg Disputations. I would commend you to read all of it, but that was Article 21 in, in its totality. So for Luther, a theologian of the cross tells the truth, even when the truth is ugly, even when the truth depicts a suffering Savior killed by the Roman government, even when it entails suffering for us. A theologian of glory, on the other hand, attempts to make theological statements about God to shore up a position of power and privilege and wealth. So you can see, I think, I hope, that a, theo theolog a theology of glory appeals to our flesh. It appeals to our desire to have all that we want to be comfortable. So if we're to apply that template today, the progressive and liberal so-called Christians that were highlighted in the film we recently watched on Sunday evenings together as a church called American Gospel Christ Crucified, they, by and large, would all be theologians of glory. And, and also, more covertly, less obviously, people like Joel Osteen or Sean Nepstead, a, a local pastor, Bill Johnson and every proponent of the so-called health and wealth and prosperity gospel preachers, they would all be theologians of glory. 
You see, a, theolo- a theology of glory expects total success. It expects finding all the answers, winning all the battles, and living happily ever after, all in this life. The theology of glory is all about my strength, my power, and my works. A theologian of glory expects his church to be perfect and always grow. And if a theologian of glory gets sick, he expects God to heal him. Now, it's not that glory is bad, right? This is where this, these distinctions get a little confusing, I think. Because we know glory, God's glory is good. God is glorious. He glorified His Son. And He glorifies us in Christ, Romans 8.30. But the problem, if I could try and pinpoint it, is that a theology of glory wrongly assumes that the blessings and promises that believers will enjoy in glory, in Zion, in the new heavens, in the new earth, when Christ consummates His kingdom, when He comes back again, and He ushers in the eternal age, these theologians of glory, they act as if we are to have those blessings now without exception. But that is not how it is for us when we live in this fallen world and this already not yet tension as we wait for Christ's second coming. We enjoy blessing and peace in Christ now, but not in a fully glorified sense. And Luther pointed out that when God chose to save us, he did not follow the way of glory. That is to say, in his first coming, when Christ first came, in his first advent, He did not come as a great hero king, defeating his enemies and establishing a mighty kingdom on earth overtly, though he laid the groundwork for that at Christ's second coming, right? Rather, he came as a baby laid in an animal trough, a man of sorrows with no place to lay his head, and he saved us by the weakness and shame of dying on a cross. A message that Paul said in chapter 1 of this letter is foolishness to the world. It confounds the world's wise and their wisdom. But regrettably, this theology of glory that we must that says that we must always have the abundant life now is a common view today. And we need to think rightly about the cross of Christ and the cross we also are to take up. You see, if you follow along on your note sheet now, or on your outline, we have to consider the cross of Christ in our own cross. The problem with this view of the cross and a theology of glory is that it leaves out the impetus of our Christian lives now. Namely, the one Jesus stated in in the Gospel accounts. For example, in Matthew 16, verse 24, he says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. When Christ died on the cross for sinners, he not only stood in my place, doing what I never could do, in other words, forgiving my own sin, but he also showed me what I enjoy would do in response to his saving work for me, namely taking up my own cross and joining him on the Calvary road of death to self. Remember what the Apostle Paul said to the saints in Galatia. This is at the end of the second chapter. He says to them, I have been crucified with Christ. Now let's make no no mistake here, friends. The Apostle Paul was not there in Jerusalem on a cross next to Christ. Right at that time, he would be one of the pharisaical party who would eventually be torturing and persecuting the Christians. Yet, here is Paul, 
now a believer, and he writes to the saints in Galatia, and he says, I have been crucified with Christ, and the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And, and church, beloved, that's not just for the apostle dying to self. That's not just to, for him. It is me who should say that since I trust Christ for salvation. It is you all who should also say it because you have been united to Christ in faith. It's not that we do it perfectly. This denying of ourselves, this daily taking up our cross. The Apostle Paul didn't do it perfectly. But the point is, is that we find our true identity in Christ and Him crucified. We can't let the theology of the cross leave the forefront of our thoughts in our mind. Christ died to save us from hell, but not to save us from our cross. He died to save us from the wages of our sin, but not so that we might just have this easy, abundant life here and now. He died so that we could be glorified, but not to keep us from first being crucified. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily. Those are Jesus' words. For the Christian, the cross of Christ is not merely a past place of substitution. It's not a place where we do good works for the forgiveness of our sins. That's not what it means to take up our cross daily. It's not. This doesn't mean doing good works so that we would be justified and forgiven. That was Christ's work on the cross, that we would be justified and forgiven. But for us, it is a present place of daily execution. Uh, the Apostle Paul says in Romans 6, 6-7, you can turn there with me. Verse 6 says, We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin, for one who has died has been set free from sin. In other words, there must be a death in our life. A death that leads to life. A death to self that leads to life in Christ. And so we must never let the cross lose its crucifying power in our lives. Never let it slip into an afterthought, a past experience that you're somehow now beyond as though Christ died for sinners so that we can now live for pleasure. But oh, that is such a popular message today. The reality is, though, that we will have trouble now. And you know, we, we, I'm reminded of our study through the book of Ecclesiastes. We were instructed there by the preacher, Kohelet, that we should eat, drink, and be merry because God is sovereign. We should fear God and keep the commandments. It's not to say that we will have no happiness now, but what we need to understand is that all of the promises and the the blessings that are contained in the, the future grace that we have in being uh, part of God's eternal kingdom, that those things we don't have in fullness now. Those The pleasures are coming. Some of them are already here, absolutely like forgiveness and accept, acceptance and a measure of holiness, the fact that we are adopted into God's family. But just like Jesus endured the cross for the joy that was set before him, 
so it is with us in this fallen age, according to the book of Hebrews. We must also endure the cross for the joy that is set before us. Our cross is not Christ's cross. Again, we don't die. We don't metaphorically crucify ourselves for the forgiveness of our sins, but we do die to ourselves. Most of the joy we long for is still over the horizon. Our brother Mike Provencia and others who went on to glory before us know that joy more than us. But it's going to be even better for them and for us after Christ comes again. And so the the writer of the Hebrews says to us in verse 13 and 14 of chapter 13, let's look over there, it's a few pages over. Verse 13, Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. In other words, if you would save your life, you must lose it. And if you would follow Jesus, you must take up your cross daily, seeking the city that is to come. Not the city that is here now, the city that is to come. The great tragedy of much of contemporary Christianity is that the cross is safely relegated to the distant past. And when the cross is neglected like that in favor of the benefits the cross produces, Christianity gets flipped on its head and people are led astray. People are led into deep lostness. And so this is an important matter that Paul is getting at here in our text. Now, what does all this have to do with our text in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 5? Well, it centers on pride and boasting in Corinth. So if you're following on your outline, that's where we are now. Remember that Paul was dealing with pride and boasting at the end of chapter 1. Pride is a problem. We don't like to be fools, but the perishing world deems the message of the gospel as foolishness. Well, then what do we do? How do we respond to that? Excuse me. What Paul wants to show in this chapter is that the reason there is so much pride and boasting at Corinth is that they are not letting the cross have its crucifying effect in the present. They think they've advanced beyond the cross. The cross may have been necessary to get them over the problem of sin, but now they are filled and rich and wise and strong. They are kings. That is... In their own eyes. You see, the weakness of the cross, the foolishness of the cross, the humiliation of the cross, these are long gone. They've forgotten the elementary things as as if they weren't important and have attempted to move beyond them, but this has only caused them to fall back into their foolish pagan ways. And it's only going to get worse for them in this regard as well. You know, they, they, they start to divide into camps of their favorite teachers. They, they identify with the teacher they most liked and the wisdom he had, their favorite Sophia, the favorite wisdom. And as the letter develops, you'll see that these Christians have the problem of looking more and more like the pagans they once used to be rather than the Christians they now are in Christ. And in fact, In some ways, I'm thinking of the specific example of sexual immorality, they even outdo the pagans in wickedness, all because they have forgotten this theology of the cross. 
Now let's look at Paul's agonizing use of irony in 1 Corinthians 4, 8, and 11. So turn back to the letter to the saints in Corinth, the first letter, if you haven't already. And this is, this is just brutal. Okay, listen to the irony. He says, Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us you have become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. Notice those two words, we are weak and we are fools. The same two words used to describe the cross in one chapter 1, verse 25, divine weakness and divine foolishness. Now, continue at the end of verse 10. He says, You are held in honor, but we in dispute. Now, what's he saying? What's he, what's he accomplishing with this use of irony? He's saying that they were wrong to think that Jesus died on the cross so that in this age they might have fullness, wealth, kingly dignity, worldly wisdom, and strength. You see, the cross is not a mere event in history, friends. It is a way of life. Take up your cross daily, Jesus said. And they weren't taking up their cross daily. They were sitting on their throne daily. They were leaving in the past what belongs in the present, namely the cross. And they were trying to bring to the present what belongs in the future, namely the power and the dignity of glorified saints. They were theologians of glory, And the result was that the cross was being emptied of its power to humble, and their testimony was being contaminated with pride and selfish desire. And that's where we see all these troubles arising out of in the Corinthian church. Their selfish desire. They were all doing what was right in their own eyes. They didn't seek conformity to Christ. And so Paul is doing what he could in these early chapters of 1 Corinthians to show us and to show them that the Christian life is a life on the cross, a life of daily going to the cross, a life of daily preaching the gospel to yourself. The cross is not merely a past place of substitution. It is also a present place of daily execution, the execution of our pride. The execution of boasting in ourself, the execution of self-reliance, the execution of self-esteem, and the execution of, uh, the, of our desire to have the status and the praise of men. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 51, an interesting phrase, he says, I die daily. How is he able to do that? His mind is set on Christ and him crucified, church. That is how. 1 Corinthians 15 is that famous chapter where Paul gives a summary of the gospel. And what does he call the gospel there? He says a number of things about it. He lays it out all in accordance with Scripture. But he says that the gospel, the message he received, that it is of first importance. First importance. Church, we don't go beyond the cross. The cross influences, it colors the way we see the whole Christian life. 
and the knowledge of Christ and Him crucified impacted Paul's own life, of course. He goes on to his own personal experience of the power of the cross. So let me try to show you the structure of these five verses and then look at a few of them more closely. Some of these things we've went over in sufficient detail in previous sermons, so some details we'll overlook this morning, such as going into depth about the topic of wisdom. So Paul describes the way he came to Corinth with two negative statements about how he did not come and two positive statements about how he did come. In addition, he tells us the basis of this kind of coming, namely the cross of Christ. And he tells us the goal of this kind of coming, namely that faith might rest in God's power and not man's wisdom. So we're going to break this down into two parts, okay, for your outline. First, how Paul did not come to Corinth. Notice the two descriptions of how he did not come. The first is in verse 1, and he says, When I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God in lofty wisdom or speech. The second description of how he did not come is in verse 4. And there he says, My speech, my message, were not implausible words of wisdom. This is not new to us, right? We're familiar with this in Paul's defense of his ministry already. This is exactly what he said in 117, chapter 1, verse 17. He preached the gospel, not with eloquent wisdom, but we're going to see this morning that there was indeed a wisdom in what Paul spoke, but it is not the wisdom of the world. And Paul's style of presenting the gospel was not with fancy and sophisticated words that he might win a following of people who just admire sophistication and pomp, who just like those sorts of ivory tower things. Those people certainly exist, but Paul's not wanting to win people to sophistication, right? He's wanting to win them to Christ. That should be our goal as well. There's a show that my daughters watch. It's called Fancy Nancy. I don't know if you've seen that. Parents with little kids, you may have seen it. It's a cute cartoon about a little girl who she likes to be fancy, like the name implies. She's fancy in all that she does. But there's one way in which this especially stands out. Instead of saying something like, the peanut butter and jelly sandwich was really good, She'll say the peanut butter and jelly sandwich was extraordinary. And then she'll break the fourth wall and she'll look at the camera and say, extraordinary is fancy for good. And little fancy Nancy feels special in front of her friends because she is the way she is. She uses these big words. Now, I certainly like that my daughter's vocabulary is growing. But the Apostle Paul had no interest in this kind of eloquence before the saints in Corinth. He wasn't wanting them to be impressed with him. He's wanting them to be impressed with Christ. He decreased so that Christ would increase. We know from Paul's letters that he was a profound thinker and that he could use language powerfully. I mean, it's not to say that Paul was incapable of using sort of eloquent speech. But the point that he's making here is that he did not preach the gospel with the hope of appealing to the worldly, unspiritual admiration of those things. The appeal for Paul's gospel is the sweetness of Christ, the majesty of Christ, the glory of Christ. That was what he wanted people to catch. He did not want people to respond because of his ability to use eloquence or because of his intellect. The goal of his preaching, the goal of all right preaching, is the making known of Christ. Do away with all show and vain glory. You don't need to have a a perfectly set up stage, a backdrop with your, with your 
MacBook on your table or your iPad that you're preaching out of and a stool there. You don't need to look great. It's not about you. Right preaching consists of presenting Christ and Him crucified so that the hearers may know Christ and their constant need of Him, all in light of God's glory. Beware, friends, of those preachers that are theologians of glory who invest into big stage props and to looking cool, trying to capture the attention of the hearers. Because the, the attention isn't to be on us. It's to be on Christ. Paul Washer rightly said this. He said, Whenever eloquence is more important than the words spoken, there is no power. Whenever the delivery of the message is more important than the truth proclaimed, it is useless. And Brother Washer is not being novel here. He's simply paraphrasing what the Apostle Paul is saying to the saints in Corinth. It's not that delivery doesn't matter at all, but delivery of the message must not be the main thing. That is the description of how Paul did not come. Secondly, how did Paul come to Corinth? Well, the first description is in verse 3. He says, I was with you in weakness and fear and in much trembling. And the second description of how he did come is in verse 4. After saying that his speech and message were not implausible words of wisdom, he goes on to say positively that his speech and message were in demonstration of the Spirit and power. So the So the two descriptions about how Paul did come to Corinth are that he was with them in weakness and fear and trembling, and that his message was in the demonstration of spirit and in power. But what was Paul's weakness? Now, this is hard to say exactly what it is. After all, Paul doesn't specifically say what it is here in our text. Is it a general view of himself in light of the weightiness of the message he was to deliver? Sort of a humble attitude that recognized his own feet of clay and the importance of the one who was the object of his message? The fact that he also mentions fear and trembling lends itself to this notion. The apostle is certainly confident about his message. He's not ashamed of the gospel in any way, but he definitely lacked the arrogance that marks many brilliant men. He lacked the narcissism that marks many pastors today. He was with them in weakness and fear and trembling. In 2 Corinthians 10.10, his opponents were saying his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily, excuse me, his bodily presence is weak and his speech is of no account. Well, evidently, Paul did not have a very strong appealing appearance. But is this weak bodily presence his humility before them or is it a physical problem with his body? Many commentators believe it to be the latter, a physical problem. So so listen to this. This, I think, is helpful. This is how Paul describes the first time he preached to the churches uh, in Galatia. He says in verse 13 and 14 of chapter 4, he says, You know it was because of a body ailment, in other words, a weakness, that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. Then, of course, Paul describes his thorn in the flesh in excuse me, 2 Corinthians 12 with the same language of weakness. He says in verse 9 that he will all the more gladly exult in his weakness because then the power of Christ rests on him. Jesus says to him, My power is made perfect in your weakness. That's just the connection he makes here in our text, isn't it? 
He says in 2.3 that he was with them in weakness. And then in verse 4, he says that his words were in the demonstration of the spirit and power, the same power that he says is made perfect in his weakness. Paul doesn't try to hide or deny his weaknesses that make him despicable to some. Instead, he exults that God would be willing to use such an earthen vessel so the powerful effect of his preaching might be clearly of God. Nothing in him, his weakness, highlights God's grace in his life. And that's good news for us, isn't it, church? Those things that we are embarrassed about, that we are prone to be ashamed of, they can be the very things that God uses to humble us and encourage us to be bold proclaimers of the gospel, forcing us to highlight the crucified Savior and not merely the gifts that he gives. But besides this weakness that he mentions, there is fear and trembling. It's mentioned in verse 3. Which at the very least means this, okay? He did not come to Corinth with an air of self-pride about him. There was no arrogance or vanity associated with his message. He wasn't a narcissist like many pastors are today and through church history past. Instead, there was a meekness and a real trembling because he is aware of the holiness of God Almighty and of his flesh and of the importance of the message that he is to herald. This is instructive for us, friends. Do we realize these things about ourselves as well? Do we grasp the holiness of God Almighty? Do we grasp the the power of our flesh to taint and to distract from the holiness of God? And do we understand the importance of the message that we are called to herald? When it comes to our responsibility to share the gospel, which we all have that shared responsibility, how do we think of it? Well, if you say, you know, wait a minute, I thought Christians are supposed to be confident and fearless. And here's Paul saying he is with them in fear and trembling. What should we think about that? Well, to an extent, it is true because God is sovereign and he himself is the well of confidence that we should draw from. So we should be confident and fearless. But before we draw from that well, we need to know our weakness and fear and tremble. Because if we don't know our weakness and fear and tremble, then instead we might attempt to herald this message with our own strength rather than the strength that God himself can provide. Consider these words from a man who knew his share of suffering and opposition, uh, John Calvin. This is from his commentary on the passage. He says, The servants of the Lord are not so dull as not to see threatening dangers, nor insensitive as not to be affected by them. No, and in fact, they must be seriously apprehensive for two main reasons. One, that humbled in their own eyes, they might learn to lean and rest completely on God alone. And two, they might be trained in true self-denial. Paul, therefore, was not without a sense of anxiety, but he controlled it, so that he nonetheless continued to be undaunted in the midst of crisis. In other words, we need to rightly know ourselves, which is a gift of grace before we can rightly look to God and be supplied with what we need. It's not our strength that we need. It is Christ's strength. So let's focus now on what it is to know Christ and Him crucified, because that's where our strength is going to come from. That Paul is trembling and fearful, that he is weak and unimpressive, that he avoids eloquence and fancy speech. What does it all have to do with the cross? Well, in verse 2, 
Paul says the reason he came to Corinth in this way is because he decides to know nothing among you and among them except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Well, what does that mean? It does not mean the only thing he mentioned in his 18 months in Corinth was the cross. Because again, in this letter, he scolds them for not understanding other things as well. But I think what it does mean is that whatever else he knew, whatever else he spoke about, and whatever else he did, he would know it and say it and do it in relation to Christ crucified. Christ and him crucified colored all of his life. This brings us back to where we started earlier this morning. He will not let the cross become a historical relic. He will not become a theologian of glory. He puts the cross at the center of his everyday work and relationships. He makes tents in the shadow of the cross. He preaches in the shadow of the cross. He disputes with opponents in the shadow of the cross. He eats and he drinks and he sleeps. Christ crucified. It's always the main focus. Remember the Apostle Paul said in the previous chapter, The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. Verse 17, verse 23, But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. He's wanting to know Christ and Him crucified, but look, this is the result that it brings. We've talked about this some before, so I won't go into too much detail, but this perfectly highlights the error of doing evangelism, evangelism and starting with God loves you and has a special plan for your life right? That's not a stumbling block. God loves you and has a special plan for your life. That is, in fact, a theology of glory. You see that now, I hope. It's focusing on the benefits of the cross rather than the cross itself. But the message of Christ and Him crucified is a message that first brings a man or a woman low. It offends before it brings joy. That is what Paul is getting at in chapter 1. And most certainly, The world is not offended by Christian nicety and charity. I'm reminded of the Samaritan's purse involvement in helping to bring relief to New York City when the coronavirus first exploded there. The city was happy to have Franklin Graham there and and setting up these tents for the overflow, the overflow that was never used, mind you. And they were happy to have them there until they learned of the Christian message which they supported. And at that point... They wanted nothing to do with Franklin Graham and Samaritan's Purse. The world is not offended by Christian kindness or when Christians are silent. Remember what I said earlier, that perhaps you know, some of us have never really had an enemy until now when we have this person who has reported us to the district attorney where we have this enemy. Well, when we're silent, when we don't tell of the message of the cross, we're not going to have people upset with us. The world's offended. And it's not that the goal is for people to be offended with us. Of course not. Let me make that clear. The goal is for Christ to be glorified in the preaching of his life, death, and resurrection because the power of the gospel is to save sinners. But the reality is, is that not everybody will receive it. It does offend some. And so the world is offended when believers release the word of the cross. When we preach the saving power of the cross and the wisdom of God in saving sinners and all the cross does to save a person and change them, the world is offended. And by the mercy of God, when a person sees their sin with the eyes of faith, it is then when the power of God is is put on display. They are offended 
before they receive it in faith and joy. That is why Paul decided to know nothing among them except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. It is why we must all as well. Now, I didn't say much of Paul's view of power in verse 4 and 5, where Paul says that his message was in demonstration of the Spirit and power, that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Many people, many commentators, take the power in these two verses to refer to miracles. And certainly Paul worked miracles, right? And you read the book of the letter of the Acts of the Apostles and of the Holy Spirit, you know that Paul worked miracles. But I doubt that this is what he means here. I can't help but think that first in Paul's mind is the power referred back to in chapter 1, verse 17, because it is the closest parallel to this verse. Remember what he said there, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with eloquent wisdom. That's the connection with 2, 3, and 5. He says, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. And so when he says in 2.4 that he did not come with this kind of eloquence, but came in the demonstration of the Spirit and power, he most likely means the power of the cross. Christ crucified is called the power of God in 1.24. 1 Corinthians 1.24. And therefore, it is also called the power of God in 2.5. The focus is Christ, church, as it should be. Christ is the power of God of God, Christ and his cross. What Paul wanted more than anything in his life was to get out of the way of the power of God. The thought that anyone might be of Paul, as he described in chapter 1, or the thought that people might pin their hope or their faith on his eloquence or his strength was a deplorable thought to Paul. He wanted All he wanted, excuse me, all he wanted was to know Christ crucified so the power of of the cross would save sinners. And so what did he do? He died on the cross every day. He died to intellectual show. He died to impressive eloquence. He died to secular demands of glory, of self-assured, powerful, attractive performances. He was with us in weakness and in much fear and trembling so that in our faith, Yours and mine this morning might not rest in the wisdom of man, but in the power of God, the power of Christ crucified. And so I ask of you today, beloved, don't treat the cross like a historical relic of the past. Don't fall into the trap of being a theologian of glory. Don't treat the message of Christ and Him crucified as if it is something that only matters at the beginning of your relationship with God. It is the very power of God to change everything in your life. It influences how we live every day and in every decision. Knowing Christ and Him crucified is central to our faith. That's exactly why God and His wise providence set up the regular observance of the Lord's Supper, something that we're going to do together in just a moment. But let's pray and then we'll explain the process of the Lord's Supper. Father in heaven, we praise you for the cross of Christ. And I ask, Lord, that you would cause us all to not be deceived by the temptation to be theologians of glory, but instead we we be theologians of the cross, embracing a theology of the cross, seeing daily our need to die to self and to daily take up our cross. Help us, Lord, to not put our hope in the blessings of salvation, 
but simply in the person who brings to us salvation, who we know most fully there at the cross. Help us, God, to honor you, for you are worthy of honor and praise. You are faithful. You never change. And we are grateful to you for all that we have. Please conform us to Christ. Make us to love one another. Make us to grow in faith that we might honor and glorify you all the more with our lives. To you be glory, honor, and praise. And we pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.